0: Listening to a podcast from the National. What does it mean to be well? This question is at the heart of the debate around the development of the health sector in the UAE following what has been described as a golden era of growth. I'm Mustafa Rawi and welcome to the National's Business Extra Podcast from our newsroom in Abu Dhabi. This is the second part of our series taking a deep dive into the important healthcare sector in the UAE and wider region. Particularly with the prevalence of lifestyle-related conditions in this region and the concerns about rising costs, we ask the question what it means to be well. It's really at the heart of the debate around the future of the healthcare sector. And that's where this second part is taking us. What will the industry look like 5, 10, 15 years from now? and what are the trends driving it. I caught up once again with Kareem Idelby, the GM of Bupa Global India, Africa and the Middle East. And we talked about engagement across the sector, how it's key to supporting the change of culture towards wellness. Part of this is driven by the need for efficiencies and the other part is the country is simply evolving. Kareem told us why wellness means something different to everyone.
1: I think you know insurers engaging with providers to work out how they can work together to ultimately deliver that best customer outcome. Um, insurers and providers working with their customers, um, corporates, uh, so you know employers talking to their employees, um, and and really thinking about you know what does wellness mean, um, and really starting to build in that health culture um, because that's ultimately what's going to drive the change, and. We can't look at it like an additional cost. This isn't like so take the, the corporate example. This isn't just like an extra line your training budget or, you know, extra oh I've got to lay on more onto my PL. No, this is a cost that we're already incurring through lack of productivity, absenteeism, you know, all sorts of factors. Um, it's about how do we make use of what we're spending already in a more effective way. And the only way we can do that is by engaging with our workforce, understanding what it means to them, you know, is it the fruit in the office? Is it uh, ergonomics, better desks, chairs, lighting? Um, Is it, you know, more physical activity throughout the day? Is it walking meetings? Um, Is it, you know, turning the lifts off one day so that people are forced to take the stairs? I don't know, but every... Workforce is going to have a different interpretation. Yeah. And it's about putting those programs but in place. From, what you're, from things- what you're
0: saying, it seems like there's a lot of responsibility on employers in, the, in this conversation, right? That, they ha- that corporates have to be really, really aware.
1: But, to, but, but can- you can't avoid that because now they're forced to pay for health insurance and to provide health insurance to all of their people. So this is a cost that they are already incurring. It's now about how do you get the most out of it in order to keep your people well.
0: But do they, is that how they generally, it's difficult to generalize, I appreciate that, but is that how they approach it or are they looking, how can we make this as cheap as possible for us given that we we don't have a choice, right?
1: Every, look, I'm I'm not going to speak on behalf of every employer, um, but I think that this is where it needs to go. Um, And that's the, you know, so my call out would be for that level of engagement um, because uh, I think that, That's where once we start to engage and understand what it means to stay well, um, what we will see, it's well publicized that across the region and not just UAE specific, you know, what are the main uh, conditions? We see cardiovascular, we see diabetes, we see cancer, um, you know, those big chronic conditions. Um, But if you pair that back a bit, you know, what's driving that? Well, that could be hypertension, that could be high cholesterol, that could be physical inactivity. All lifestyle-related issues. All lifestyle-related issues. So before we start going and addressing cardiovascular and, and all of the other respiratory, etc., actually, you know, the, the big thing that doesn't get talked about is mental health. Um, and, and addressing some of those mental health issues, which could be your office environment, your home environment, how much physical activity you get, could actually, well, will actually be the way to address those longer-term chronic conditions, which are ultimately the major drivers of cost that increase the cost of healthcare, pretty much in every country around the world.
0: It it feels to me that there has been a bit of a a sea change in society in the last couple of years, that people are much more aware of lifestyle issues, of health. I mean, we had um, the Crown Prince of Dubai, for example, doing the 30-minute... Everyday exercise for a month challenge. Um, he's now um, instigated a, a, a games, a corporate game, like a government games, absolutely, which is kind of like a corporate games thing to kind of in- improve the mentality around around lifestyle. So you, you feel things are changing. Social media allows you to put your healthy snack on on Instagram or or to talk about it in Facebook in, in Facebook in groups. So I, I think slowly something is shifting. It feel it feels that way and. In your conversations with various stakeholders, do you, do you feel that they're better informed or they ask you the right questions?
1: I think we're getting there. And I think you're right. It, it really does come down to everything that we've seen in terms of um, uh, what, what's happening here in the UAE, as well as uh, across the region, um, is about trying to get more people to become more aware and engaged in their own personal health. Um, and I think that can only be good. Uh, and, but the thing is, we have to keep at it. Um, you know, and that's on governments, regulators, insurers, providers, corporates, everyone. We have to be consistently engaging people in their health in order to make that change. Um, certain, uh, you know, you'll see uh, different ways of doing that. So, for example, you could create games. So the gamification of wellness, for example make it rewarding, recognize people's good behaviors and give them rewards for it. You know, That's the sort of thing that we're starting to see now. And that's where it has to go, because people have to not just enter into it and do it for 30 days, they have to keep doing it. Mm. Um, and uh, and that's where we will actually start to see a difference. But you're right, there is. we are seeing that change. Now it's about keeping it up.
0: Are there any incentives that could be put out there for employers um, to, to take this approach? I mean, how can you encourage them to say, look, it's not just about, um, you know, you ticking a box um, because it's a regulation thing, but actually, you know, you, you could have a you know, to kind of close that mismatch of, of short-term costs versus long-term culture change. What can you do?
1: But I think that, that again is where actually the mindset change needs to happen because the incentive is a more productive business, which means a better bottom line you know, and that is a cost that they are already incurring. So, you know, does any employer want to be more successful and deliver more top and bottom line growth? Yes, of course they do. Um, So how do you do that? Well, engage your workforce, make them more productive. Um, That means keeping them well and reducing absenteeism, but also having them listened to and recognized and valued because you're investing in them.
0: I mean, there's a a wider thing about culture here as well. I mean, you know, someone someone said it to me that kind of we we're sad we eat we're happy we eat you know um, and so you know collectively when we gather around the, the the meeting conference room at the national for example and we're celebrating something it's never with cucumbers right, right? so I'm, I'm not go- I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell tales on everyone but it's never like that so you know it, it's it's almost like you're you know there's that mentality that psychological block of you know being healthy somehow we're punishing ourselves right. Yeah. So how do how do we shift that as well? That overall, you know, idea that actually we're being good to ourselves.
1: Again, I think it, what being healthy and being well means something different to everyone. Um, it could be mental health, it could be physical health, um, and that's where you know uh, what I don't want to do is is have mutiny at the national now because the cake and the chocolates have gone. Right. Um, because at the same time, it could be actually that. Uh, What's going to move the needle there are the ergonomics and the the healthy workplace as opposed to the food that's on offer. Right, Um, and that's and I just I come back to the point that it's got to be about employers working with employees to engage, ask the questions, and have that constant dialogue um, and really make health an agenda topic, the health of the workforce a top agenda topic that everyone is constantly addressing. Um, because that's how it will make a difference.
0: And is this unique to the UAE, or are you seeing no, this in other this markets is, in the region? This is
1: uh, across the world, in, in fact. Um, and uh, and I think that's, that's where I think the, the health care has to go. Um, not just health insurance, I'm talking healthcare health um, care has to go because I think through digitization, through technology, we have so many different ways to engage um, with people now that um, if... The incumbent healthcare players don't do it, someone else will. Um, so it's either you know get on board and start using those channels and doing so in a meaningful way, using the data at your disposal to really make a difference, to deliver that customer outcome, that customer experience, and do it in the most cost-effective way. Um, otherwise, uh, you'll be you're a dinosaur, and you will be out we we'll the game in very
2: soon.
0: And and so in, in these is, is sort of the priorities when you're talking in your Egyptian market as well, I'm Egyptian mm. seventy million people plus, um, you know, huge uh, differences in, in sort of socioeconomic uh, groupings, uh, massive physical geography of, of a country as well. I mean, is it very different in, in Bupa's approach um, to a market like that
1: versus the UAE? I think, again, every market has its own issues. What you didn't mention on Egypt is just the huge macroeconomic um, issues that Egypt has been facing over the last few years, not least with the devaluation of the currency um, last year. So making you know, accessibility to foreign currency, affordability, all sorts of different issues that that throws up as well. Um, but the approach is still the same. People are still people, <laughs> no matter where they are. But, and health is still health. It just means you know, what... Uh, is uh, what it means to them in terms of their own physical well-being or mental well-being. Again, it's about greater engagement. So what we're trying to do in all of our countries around the world, and we have several where we are the large established healthcare player, we are trying to drive that greater engagement through digital and face-to-face tools. Um, But the other thing that I would also mention is by what happens when you have that engagement and... The, the customer or the end user trusts you um, to, to have that engagement and dialogue with you, then you know, part of that promise then is also ensuring sufficient controls, uh, security, right. privacy of data. And that is of paramount importance to us. So I, you can't have one without the other. Um, I think that, you know, uh, and certainly at Bupa around the world, you know, we really care and we really wanna drive that engagement but we also want to do it in a very controlled and secure way um, because uh, if you don't have that, then, you know, there is no, there is no business.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the, the health is as much about comfort levels um, and not, not in just in terms of treatment, but feeling like you're in good hands. Absolutely. And so that, that the same would apply to the data that you would get from, from your customers, from your providers, um, you, that you make sure that it is in safe hands with Bupa. Um, and I guess when you go back to head office in a Bupa, uh, global in Brighton in the UK and and you're having conversations. These must be the concerns in every, coming out of every region, right? Which is absolutely. Which is you know technology brings benefits, but it also brings new new concerns that we have to deal with.
1: And and by the way, that's not just Bupa Global, which is obviously the international arm of Bupa, but also Bupa as a whole, all of our domestic health insurance businesses as well. Um, it's the same concerns uh, and. Uh, And again, we're seeing regulation across the EU um, with GDPR and everything around data protection that's happening there and really important regulations coming in, which we have to absolutely make sure that we are in absolute compliance with. Um, It it is absolutely top of mind in terms of creating that controlled and secure environment, because as you say, it's, it's that trust. It's the trust to deliver that promise is effectively what we are being asked by our customers to do. And, you know, once you break that trust, it's very hard to get that back.
0: Now, I want to continue my conversation with Rashid Tabari, who's a founding partner of Intercare Health Center in Abu Dhabi. It's a pioneering provider of primary care in the country. And Rashid explains how, in a competitive marketplace, as it has become, technology is increasingly important in terms of providers evolving to meet their patients' expectations.
2: What we've also done is try to integrate conventional medicine with uh, a bit of, um, I don't want to say integrative medicine, but uh, advanced screening. So we, over the last six months, what we've done also to elevate our game and uh, provide better service for our patients and, uh, and quality of care is we're doing DNA testing, screening, profiling. And it's all about how much data you can gather about a patient so you can diagnose him better. So that has been uh, uh, has done very well, patients have enjoyed it. And the way I see intercare growing is uh, ho- to have multiple facilities, not sure brick and mortar. I'm not a believer in brick and mortar anymore. Uh, not that I have anything against it, but it's prohibitive and costly. So the challenge today is how do you create growth, being providing the best quality of care at the most cost effective rates. So this is why I'm a big believer in the virtual uh, care today whether it 's like i said virtual primary care clinics um, or uh, telemonitoring health care is shifting towards the patient rather than the patient coming to the to the to the physician or to the practice so it's about convenience so consumer behavior is changing so if you look at consumer behavior today they want convenience they want no waste of time they don 't want uh, at least time possible to see a physician uh, they want quality um, they want comfort and we're so through the uh, new initiatives that we're doing about with, virtual techno- with technology and the virtual care, is providing all these to the patients. So we provide better access for them to be able to access through technology or virtual telemedicine. We provide um, the same level of quality of care because it's the same physicians that they're seeing in the clinic, they can see virtually. Um, it's, it's, it's more cost effective because they can it's shorter uh, consult times, there is very specific in there, what do you want? Um, and we feel that our play is, is how to grow primary care on a virtual platform. So it seems there's constant evolution, constant
0: investment. You've always got to stay at the forefront of of what's happening in the industry. When you look at growth in terms of whether it's more patients or more doctors or the ability to serve more patients and provide more doctors, you're going to look at every aspect. It's, it's going to be whatever technology can offer you, how to harness the data, um, you know, looking at different treatments and what, what what people are interested in at the moment. So really, you're, you're, you're having to stay on the ball all the time with, with every development that's going on. Um, and so you're Absolutely. constantly looking outside this country, globally, talking amongst, uh, you know, other, other medical facilities as well. It, it sounds like it's, it, it's not just about running a clinic, um, but also in terms of understanding where health is going
2: in general. Absolutely. Exactly what I was thinking just before you said that. So, that, so, so the, way, the, the rationale behind primary care was where when we did home care, which is a sister concern, we were the second or third company, in the uh, third provider in the, in the country.
0: So that was home nursing?
2: Yeah, home nursing. Yeah. So providing care for patients at home, whether it's we do all therapy as well as nursing and physician care. So when I looked at how do we diversify, we took a view of where the market's going to be in two years. And that's why I did primary care. The way I see the market developing the next 24 months is going to be about how do you integrate brick and mortar with technology and the virtual world. And that's the strategy that we're developing today. And if we succeed in delivering that, we will, again, be in the fr- on the frontier of the next venture into healthcare. The challenge is, like I said before, there's a lot of big providers in the market, um, and there's a lot of consolidation. So to remain relevant and grow, you have to think outside the box. You cannot, If you build 10 clinics, they can build 50. If you spend 100 million, they have 800 million. Um, so, it's not about, so it's about how you spend your money wisely and how you gain the most access um, uh, in the most cost-effective way. Again, I think that the key word for me is patient-centered care and delivering care at the patient, as close to the patient as possible. So whether you provide it in in an office setting or you provide pods in high footfall areas or you do telemonitoring, there's a lot of access points to patients where you can go to them and ensure that your first point of call or first, you know, on, on top of mind rather than any other provider in the market.
0: Uh, you you obviously had a view down the line you're looking at where the industry is going Um, sitting here in in sort of early 2018 uh, you know are you still bullish five years down the line you still see that that, you know the health sector in the UAE in the region will be will still be growing in five years will still have the same you
2: know strong fundamentals
0: that that it's had up to this point
2: I I believe yeah I'm pretty bullish about it I think we have a young population um, which is aging Um, there's a lot of uh, research on how to uh, create longevity of life so we'll see us living an extra 20 30 years in the next 10 years so if we make it in the next 10 15 years and we live that long I think ex- life expectancy will definitely increase by 20 30 years so there's an aging population there's an increase in the burden of disease um, and that in, in itself will allow healthcare to continue to grow although it will have to shift from regular care to look at all the technologies growing from stem cell to um, to nanotechnology, and there'll be so much. It'll be, I think the outlook will be different, maybe not in the for next five years, but so the but the growth is going to still be there. So if you look at a five year horizon, um, there's still potential for growth, and uh, within the right areas, there is exponential growth. The picture is of a of, of a of a more efficient industry, really. Um, Definitely more efficient. If you if you take a step back and look at phone triage, medical triage, it's very prominent in the West, in the US, in the UK, um, and a lot of it has been driven by AI. There's no doctor. So there is an app in the UK, you call them, they triage you, you don't even speak, you're talking to a computer, and gets you to a diagnosis and a recommendation. And that has been going on for the last year and a half, and they've proven that in 99% of the times they are better at making decisions than a physician. So where do we go from here? So is care gonna be super specialized down the line? There is, is GP is gonna be an existing practice? It's gonna take time because people still wanna see there's a value to the face-to-face interaction between a GP and a, or a doctor and a patient, right? It's a relationship, there's a trust. But with the millennials and the way that they communicate, it's becoming less and less personal, more on a phone, on a you know, WhatsApp or, or, or Skype or FaceTime. And it's no longer this one-to-one face-to-face interaction that exists today. So technology is enabling a lot of things, good and bad. Um, AI, one of the challenges, I was in a conference recently in Singapore saying the challenge of AI is loss of jobs, unrest. Is that going to affect doctors, robots doing operations? Are there going to be doctors in 20 years? I'm not sure. I don't have an answer. But if you look at the trend, driverless cars, no drivers, robotics doing operations more accurately and more successfully and more efficiently than a physician. Um, Looking at Watson doing um, uh, diagnosis of of x-rays, more precision medicine on cancer, personalized medicine, more testing. It's going to be very specific in the future where you can go in within half an hour they can tell you what's your problem what medication is going to work out of 10 and it's no longer going to be a, as complicated as it is today
0: more business extra in just a moment but first allow me to tell you about the nationals other podcasts beyond the headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct middle eastern point of view an extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio content. And find us as always at thenational.ie. This is our second and concluding part in a series taking a deep dive into the health sector of the UAE region. In part one, I've been talking to Abhishek Sharma, the CEO of Foundation Holdings. They're a private equity player, but they're also focused on the value segment and the health sector and what they've done is they've built or they're building up a brand uh, called right health and they think that this sector is uh, sort of one of the best kept secrets around now we talked about the outlook for it um, where they hope they can grow their business Uh, and looking ahead he told me that mandatory health insurance which is expected to come into the northern emirates uh, in the next 18 to 24 months is key for the
3: right health value brand So Abu Dhabi introduced uh, uh, insurance in 2009. Dubai was 2015. And we are very close to the Ministry of Health for the Northern Emirates. And it's something which is in the works and expected in 18 to 24 months from my understanding of the situation. So I think one of the things we have realized is overall in healthcare in the UAE, but also in the GCC, the demand for healthcare is still in its early days. And what I mean by that is quality and affordability is actually a big challenge. So in Abu Dhabi, the opportunity we see is actually how does one give affordable, decent quality healthcare to that bottom of the pyramid? So I think that's still a huge opportunity, which has been confirmed by the regulators and the insurance companies. Daman, for example, they're very happy to push us and encourage us on initiatives on technology, on initiatives on mobile vans, the mobile clinics, stuff which isn't very handy or has not uh, taken off to a big level. Dubai is somewhere in between where they're saying, of course, we need affordability, we need quality and access. And the Northern Emirates is, of course, as things pick up, as insurance kicks in, if one thinks of the labor and if that person is only making, call it, 2,500 to 3,000 dirhams a month, the way the math works out is these guys already on day zero they exp- uh, they remit more than 50% of their money yeah. back home. So that leaves 1,500 dirhams in their hand. Of the 1,500, rent normally is half of that. So at least 750 for food and everything. So that leaves about a 20 dirhams on a daily basis on disposable income. So when one is at a $5 a day disposable income, healthcare is not at the top of their priority from a basic perspective. So I think that's where we saw that opportunity. People have been fantastic in giving their support. We've got a great team. There's a lady, Shainoor, who's ex-Harvard, Stanford, Cambridge. And those are the sort of people who've jumped in and said, this actually, the investment and the initiatives brings healthcare, brings social impact and technology together. And that's something which is super exciting for us. And
0: Shainoor has done it before, hasn't she?
3: Shainur is, uh, you know, as a rock star. So Shainur actually was uh, has done similar stuff in the NHS in the UK, and then in Afghanistan with telemedicine and refugee-based healthcare. And here also she is uh, one of the people's person. So her whole motto is about change via culture, uh, via actually pushing movements from the inside out, and of course technology is something she's very, very uh, passionate about. So she comes in on the strategy, technology, and uh, culture piece. The existing team is also very strong at Right Health. There's a doctor called Dr. Sanjay, who really is uh, probably amongst the most visionary leaders, similar to Dr. Kasim. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, this is the legacy he leaves behind, having changed the lives of millions of people.
0: Um, when You talk about technology. Um, How important is, is that as a factor in terms of your business model? And how does
3: it apply
0: at the value segment?
3: So I think, you know, the first thing is we'd be the first ones to admit that we are, unfortunately, not clever enough to gauge what has happened in technology. So if one goes back to... You mean compared to like Silicon Valley you're talking about? To Silicon Valley, I would probably even compare myself to you. So practically, (laughs) I'm not the furthest guy in technology left to my devices. I would probably be doing the dial-up internet downloading movies 10 hours. So that's maybe just me. Luckily, what I have done is surrounded myself with fantastic rock stars, as I call it. So what I have learned is in technology itself, technology is an enabler to solve problems and amplify growth in any given industry, but especially in healthcare. So some of the instances we've seen is Google, for example, has launched something called Google DeepMind with more fields, Mm -hmm. which is a game changer in the ophthalmology space. Cleveland Clinic with caregivers, what they have done is a room very similar to this one, almost like an overgrown Kodak photo booth. And that is where a patient can come in, get scanned, a big TV comes on and speaks to the doctor. So it actually could be sitting in Abu Dhabi talking to a doctor in in uh, some other country. Now, of course, we're not saying bottom of the pyramid will do this, but over time, technology drives costs down. So our own mobile phones goes from four thousand dirhams, two thousand till a new model comes, and then the prices rise. So for us, what we've learned, technology will literally help us to increase access all the places in in the areas where we can't set up quickly enough. Let's use technology, all the areas where we believe costs are prohibitive. Let's use technology and ultimately data with big data machine learning. What we're seeing is that's something people are getting very excited about. If someone is 53, and you know, has already seen diabetes, what are the chances of that person going through a cardiovascular cataract? there's literally a lot of detailed analysis which would help people to leapfrog competition through innovation such as uh, technology I, mean, I
0: imagine because of the the numbers sheer numbers of people that you'd be dealing with and, and because they'll be coming from different parts of the world your data will be very insightful and very valuable in the future and it might be something that that you, you would help you lead towards a different way of perhaps treating people. I mean, obviously, we, we can't predict the future, but it's it's kind of exciting to me to, to think that, you know, a homegrown company in the UAE or the GCC might have that ability to do something game-changing in the health space.
3: I, You point uh spot on uh, Mustafa. So I think where we need the help of the national and yourself specifically is actually to shout our story to the rest of the world. So as I said, we started with It's been a well-kept secret. We don't want it to be a secret, and we're very much like an Apple in our thinking of an open-source belief. So that's where we are initiating talks with IBM, Microsoft, on how do we use this data to actually use it for the problems that we face today, as well as simple things like electronic medical records. How can technology be used for a more sustainable Future itself. So it's early days, but again, what we are trying to do is form meaningful relationships with firms. I met the other day a firm called Babylon, groundbreaking stuff, what they're doing in the UK, and has just done a joint venture in Saudi Arabia. Amazing things where we believe what, with the power of these companies, we can truly create a movement for change and impact.
0: Now you mentioned a couple of things when we were talking earlier. A couple, you mentioned the same thing a couple of times when we were talking earlier, actually, which was about potentially IPOing Right Health at some point. Now I-, I did say that we know we've known each other a long time. We first met when you were working on the deal uh, to IPO Al Noor Hospitals when you were a previous firm, um, which was well known in this space. Um, now I guess I'm going to ask the provocative question: Is an IPO the right step for a business like this, or is this because you know? How it can be successful, and you've done it before, and so it's a natural path that you can envision for this business.
3: So, I actually am a big believer of IPOs in general, and I think you know, my reason, especially in sectors such as healthcare and education, I always say the three biggest ways to create value in healthcare or education is number one is people, number two is people, number three is people to attract great people to organizations, especially in family business cultures. An IPO is a must-have because then one has the transparency, one has the wherewithal of strategic planning, one has governance in place, one is also able to use that currency they have, which is the stock, to again leapfrog competition by making transformational partnerships and acquisitions. So for us, the way the IPO is is, Foundation Holdings is an investor, but what is most important for Right Health, again, with its long-term focus, is to attract the best, best best-in-class talent that it can. So Foundation today is a big parent of Right Health, but I'm sure with time, Right Health will have its own identity like any other child, and that identity will be to literally be in every major area in the GCC. To have those sort of plans, it will require the right people, it will require capital, resources and time. And the IPO is the bridge between sort of where the company will be to take it from a national champion to an international champion.
0: So as I hear it, you're an advocate for the discipline and efficiency and opportunity that, and you know, in a public offering of, of listing shares on a public tradable exchange, brings you as a business and helps take you from different stages of maturity?
3: I am a big believer. And I think, you know, that is an area where I was studying, for example, the Indian healthcare IPO market, uh, Mustafa. So this is something where in India since 2015, there have been 25 healthcare IPOs. And these companies have traded up 60% post-listing. What does that mean? Yes, there's huge demand. These companies have IPO to further grow themselves and also the investors are happy as they've made money. For us, when we had done Al Noor, 85% of the stock for Al Noor was actually placed with investors such as BlackRock, Wellington, Blakely, Fidelity, big Western institutions. So if one looks at our region, typically it's been money from our part of the world goes and invests in the West. I think, you know, we like to drive our car looking forward. And that forward is the world looking more towards India and China and towards these movements. So I think we're very confident that an IPO for us, yes, it brings discipline and all the good stuff of an IPO with it, but also it helps shine investor spotlight on the country, on the region as a unique opportunity for them to excel in. So,
0: Abi, you've got a track record in in terms of being an investor in the healthcare market. And you're originally from India, of course, as well. But you've you know the Gulf very well, but you've also spent time outside. So you've got an interesting background, an interesting mix. Um, you know what what though really ultimately compels you to stick with healthcare. You could pretty much, I think, apply your your skills and your talent to to other sectors. You mentioned education, of course, but but really as a, as an intelligent investor able to see opportunities, you, you could broaden it out. So what what is the affinity you have? with healthcare and actually the GCC in India itself? Is it your background? Is it is it your experience?
3: So I think, you know, the first thing is I have been very fortunate with my life. We moved here as a family. We partnered with one of the bigger Omani groups, WJ Tavil, as a family. They own Unilever, Bridgestone, Mazda. What that means is that taught me the to- the agencies for them. Through the mean, agencies yeah. in Oman and some of the other countries. What that taught me was at least take a long-term approach to relationships. My mother, we, uh, she was a school teacher, now a vice dean in a university, very focused on making sure that kids and myself have the best education so that we have strong values and can prosper. As I got more and more into healthcare and education, for me, it's very clear why healthcare is of course, apart from the demographic and financial trends, each country realizes with its youth, and uh, Saudi has a lot of young people, India does, UAE does, the way to increase human capital, the level is via healthcare and education. So, if people live healthier, people are educated, there will be lesser wars, there will be lesser discontent, and societies come together. So, for me, it's a uh, you know, there is uh, money and there's social impact. But I think it's a chance to genuinely create companies which we can look back and say these are homegrown companies. And the challenge is, or the good thing is, one can't just read a book and say in 1600 this was done in uh, Oxford. These are live challenges which we're able to solve, which we speak day to day.
0: Thanks for listening to the Business Extra podcast. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi and this has been an episode on the healthcare sector, the final part in our series. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please do join us again next week. Until then, take care.